As of this writing, January 13th, the long-hoped-for rollout of the COVID vaccine has been underway for several weeks. While that is good news, the delays in communication, shipping, storage, processing, and delivering the vaccine to elders have meant that far fewer residents and staff at long-term care facilities have been inoculated as swiftly or seamlessly as planned. As reported by AARP's Emily Paulin, only about one million out of the two and three-tenths million residents and staff at nursing homes had received first doses, according to the CDC's data tracker. To be sure, local, state, and federal agencies are seriously working to reduce those problems and to increase the delivery to all residents in long-term care and staff. The statistics will continue to be reported, and hopefully we will make progress toward attaining herd immunity. Yet the fact remains that elders have been suffering far greater rates of infection and death than any other population. Isolation has long been determined to be as serious to health as smoking. Coupled with the quarantining due to COVID, it has become even more so. Today's articles focus on the emotional and physical toll on many older Americans caused by COVID, and a factor that has hardly been addressed, failure of empathy. Two articles from The Atlantic include Growing Old Alone by Annie Lowry, published January 2, 2021, and A Failure of Empathy Led to 200,000 Deaths, It Has Deep Roots, by Olga Kazan, published September 22, 2020. Growing old? Alone. As the country plunged into deep and unusual economic recession last year, it also plunged into a deep and unusual social recession, atomizing families and friends, evaporating hours of laughter and care and touch. This phenomenon hit nobody as hard as America's seniors, who are much more likely than their younger counterparts to live in care facilities, and many of whom have struggled to connect in a socially distant or virtual fashion. The elderly bore the brunt of this pandemic's fatalities. COVID-19 has killed nearly 250,000 people over the age of 65. They also bore the brunt of its isolation. Many older Americans spent months discriminated against, frightened, and alone. When we look back on this in the years to come, I imagine there's going to be a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking around whether it was a good idea to blockade older adults in their nursing home rooms for eight, nine, or ten months out of the year without letting them have access to their families, David Grabowski, a professor of health care policy at Harvard Medical School, told me. I think we're going to look back and say, what the hell were we doing? What we were doing was failing to save seniors' lives or maintain their livelihoods. America's inability to, or really its decision not to, control the virus has meant a precipitous decline in quality of life for its oldest and most fragile, and a catastrophic number of deaths among them. People over the age of 85 are 630 times as likely to die of COVID-19 as people in their 20s, and 95% of coronavirus deaths have occurred among Americans older than 50. 
Data compiled by the Kaiser Family Foundation showed that COVID-19 has claimed the lives of more than 100,000 people in long-term care facilities, meaning roughly 40% of coronavirus deaths have occurred in institutions housing fewer than 1% of Americans. That kind of work done and the kind of care needed, the very architecture of life lived, in nursing homes and similar facilities, pose a challenge when it comes to preventing the spread of the novel coronavirus. Such facilities congregate people and have a rotating cast of caregivers, housekeepers, food service workers, medical experts, and others tend to them. The work is often close, intimate, bed baths, blood draws, spoon-fed meals. Yet the United States, by any measure, has not met this challenge. Nine months into the pandemic, long-term care facilities are still facing shortages of personal protective equipment. Many are floundering financially, even with help from the government. They are still having problems getting COVID-19 tests turned around quickly. PPE shortages worsened in the third quarter of the year, with 17% of nursing homes reporting being low on or out of N95 masks. 11% out of or nearly out of gowns, 9% short of surgical masks, and 8% lacking eye protection. In this environment, care facilities have had little option but to close up. Following guidance from the CDC, many have barred in-person visits and kept residents in their rooms, among other measures. To compensate, facilities have set up Zoom and FaceTime calls, created outdoor areas for distanced visits, set up barriers that family members can talk through, helped residents play online social games, and arranged care packages dropped off. Many of the care residents I spoke with for this article said they had taken advantage of those options and adapted. Judy Federici is a retired lawyer who proactively moved into a retirement facility a few years ago, as she is not married and does not have children. Isolation has been tough, she said, particularly given that she moved to her community in part to ensure she would not be isolated as she got older. But she has made a project of calling people in her complex who are likely to feel lonely. Mary Anna Turner, who turns 100 next year, lives in a Virginia care facility. She indicated that her experience living through worse had given her some grit. I remember flu epidemics, she told me. I remember I had a bad case and I called a doctor and asked him to send me something for it. The nurse said no, and I asked, well, why not? She said, too many people are dying. We don't have anything to send you. Turner told me she misses her family, but is making do. Still, the social recession among older adults in care facilities is Great Depression Deep, a survey conducted by Alterum, a nonprofit health care research and consulting group, found drastic reductions in social connections among nursing home residents. Just 5% said they had visitors three times a week, compared with more than half before the virus hit. Nearly all said they did not leave their care facility for a meal or to go shopping, compared with 40% before COVID-19. Only one in four was going outside for fresh air. 
half said they no longer had access to activities such as art classes or group exercise. Nearly 90% said they could no longer eat meals in the dining room. Two in three said they no longer left their rooms to socialize with their peers. For older Americans, virtual alternatives to in-person visits are often pale alternatives. Teresa Palmer, a geriatrician, called me with her 103-year-old mother, Bernice, who lives in a San Francisco-skilled nursing facility. Teresa has spent much of the year cajoling the local authorities to allow her more access to her mom. Bernice's hearing troubles make masked and distanced visits hard. Turner indicated she had trouble with the same. Sitting six feet apart, people will turn and say something directly to me, and I cannot understand what they are saying, she said. It's still good to get together and socialize a little bit. They probably weren't saying anything important anyway. For those with more profound medical challenges, the pandemic is yet harder. New Jersey-based therapist Abby Grayson's father, Robert Stillman, was a chemist who worked for Bristol-Myers Squibb for decades. He has a degenerative neurological condition and is now in hospice. He has been in his room since March, 24 hours a day, Grayson told me. We do FaceTime, but it's hard for him to track. He can't manage the keys and the buttons, and it's not a meaningful experience for him. As his condition has worsened, his language capabilities have declined, and touch has become all the more important, she told me. I would hug him and hold his hand and stroke his hair, and he would just soak it in, she said. He's really eager for affectionate physical contact which, of course, as humans, we all are. But now, she said, I don't think anyone touches him unless it's to do a medical procedure. Isolation has taken a tremendous emotional toll on many older Americans. Oh, it's just awful, Bernice told me. You go from being a human being to being something that lies in a bed most of the day. The nurses don't communicate well with you. It has also taken a health toll. There's been more rapid language loss, and you see the delay in her responding to her difficulty processing, Teresa Palmer told me. There's an element of depression, social isolation. Well, it's just not good for the brain. Studies have shown that touch, talking, and social connection are crucial for both mental and physical health. Isolation and loneliness are associated with increased risk of depression, anxiety, and heart disease, among other conditions. We expect the proximity of others, because throughout human history, we have needed to rely upon others. Julianne Holt-Lansud, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brigham Young University, told me, Our brain has adapted to expect proximity to others, particularly trusted others. When left without it, it triggers this threat response, the sense that everything in our environment is going to be more challenging. Thankfully, for people living in care facilities, the end of the social recession and the pandemic is just a shot or two away. Nursing home residents are among the first getting the new COVID vaccines. Still, the country's mismanaged coronavirus response has failed seniors, We never found the balance between safety and resident quality of life and dignity, Grabowski said.
Instead, we found some equilibrium that left hundreds of thousands of older Americans isolated and hundreds of thousands more dead. Next, also from the Atlantic, a failure of empathy led to 200,000 deaths. It has deep roots. One giant psychology experiment explains why many people seem like they don't care about the deaths of the elderly by Olga Kazan. Sometime this week, alone in a hospital bed, an American died. The coronavirus had invaded her lungs, soaking them in fluid and blocking the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide that makes up our every breath. Her immune system's struggle to fight back might have sparked an overreaction called a cytokine storm, which shreds even healthy tissue. The doctors tried everything, but they couldn't save her, and she became the 200,000th American taken by COVID-19, at least according to official counts. In reality, the COVID-19 death toll probably passed 200,000 some time ago, and yet the photos of body bags have not had the same effect in the pandemic as after other mass casualty events, such as Hurricane Katrina, says Lori Peak, a sociologist at University of Colorado Boulder who studies disasters. Is our national empathy, our care and love and concern for one another at such a low level that we are not truly feeling in our bones, in our hearts, and in our souls the magnitude of the loss? It's hard for anyone to comprehend the sheer horror of mass death. As I wrote in April, compassion fade sets in when victims are no longer individuals but statistics and few Americans have witnessed something of this scale before. But there's an additional explanation for this empathy deficit. Part of the reason this majority white, majority non-elderly country has been so blasé about COVID-19 deaths is that mostly black people and old people are dying. Eight out of ten COVID American deaths have been among people older than 65. The rest of the dead are disproportionately black. White people's brains psychologically sort minorities as outgroups that stir less empathy. Segregated neighborhoods have also helped insulate white Americans from the horror black Americans face because the ambulance sirens and the packed hospital wards are typically far from their own zip codes. We literally don't see those deaths in the same way we might if we didn't experience segregation, says Noor Kataili, a management professor at Northwestern University who studies hierarchies. Ageism reduces human beings' capacity for caring, too. Globally, people don't value elderly lives as much as they do young people's research shows. When it comes to deciding who lives or dies, there is a disregard for the elderly, even among the elderly. Discrimination against the old is perplexing because age will ultimately catch us all. Though no white person will ever be a black person, every person, if all goes well, will get old. But several studies that forced people to imagine life and death decisions hint at how little society values the elderly. 
One major insight into this phenomenon comes from a 2018 study called the Moral Machine Experiment, which invites participants to determine how to program a self-driving car. People who play the Moral Machine game are shown two images, each of which depicts an out-of-control car driving into a different group of people, or in some of the images, a cat or a dog. For example, the game might tell the player that if you let the car plow ahead, the car will kill three little girls and two adult men. But if you swerve to the right, the car will instead kill two elderly men, two elderly women, and another non-elderly woman. Would you swerve or stay straight? Who would you kill? After it launched in 2016, the Moral Machine experiment went viral a few times, which meant that millions of people in 233 countries and territories ultimately played it. Through the game, its authors were able to glean country-specific preferences for sparing or sacrificing different types of lives. The strongest signals that came out of all of these sessions were that people preferred to spare a greater number of lives, to spare human lives, yes, to spare young lives. The most likely lives to be saved in these simulated car accidents were those of babies, children, pregnant women, and male and female doctors. Male or female homeless people and overweight men, meanwhile, were likely to be sacrificed. Overall, older men and women were some of the least likely to be spared, ranking just above dogs, human criminals, and cats, disturbingly in that order. People like dogs, said Azim Sharif, a social psychologist at the University of British Columbia and one of the authors of the study. This could explain why the large number of coronavirus cases in prison has also provoked a collective yawn from policymakers. Interestingly, people of all ages and backgrounds generally agreed on who to kill. Older players were less likely to sacrifice the older pedestrians than younger players, but they still did. As Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, himself a septuagenarian, said, As a senior citizen, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that America loves for its children and grandchildren? And if that is the exchange, I'm all in. All things being equal, people were willing to place a priority on sparing a younger person to sacrifice an older person, Sharif says. This preference for sacrificing the old to save the young was found in every country. The only places where people showed a weaker preference for killing the old, though they still preferred it to sacrificing the young, were in East Asian countries such as Japan and Taiwan and in majority Muslim countries such as Pakistan and Saudi Arabia. The two countries where people most preferred to sacrifice the elderly, meanwhile, were France and Italy. At the peak of the pandemic, this question became real for Italians, and doctors in the most affected regions of Italy used 80 or even 65 as their cutoff age for access to scarce ventilators. Sharif and his team didn't ask people why they preferred to kill the old. 
But judging by anecdotal reports, such as YouTubers playing the game for their viewers, people seemed to rationalize that the elderly had fewer years left to live. Indeed, doctors found a similar logic. In a May paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, a group of doctors from different countries suggested that hospitals consider prioritizing younger patients if they are forced to ration ventilators. Maximizing benefits requires consideration of prognosis. How long is the patient likely to live if treated, which may mean giving priority to younger patients and those with fewer coexisting conditions, they wrote. Perhaps on a global scale, we've internalized the idea that the young matter more than the old. The moral machine is not without its criticisms. Some psychologists say, The trolley problem, a similar and more widely known moral dilemma, is too silly and unrealistic to say anything about our true ethics. In a response to the moral machine experiment, another group of researchers conducted a comparable study and found that people actually prefer to treat everyone equally, if given the option to do so. In other words, people didn't want to kill the elderly. They just opted to do so over killing young people when pressed. In that experiment, though, people still would kill the criminals. Sharif said these findings simply show that people don't like dilemmas. Given the option, anyone would rather say, treat everybody equally, just so they don't have to decide. Bolstering that view in another recent report, which has not yet been peer-reviewed, people preferred giving a younger hypothetical COVID-19 patient an in-demand ventilator rather than an older one. They did this even when they were told to imagine themselves as potentially being the older patient who would therefore be sacrificed. The participants were hidden behind a so-called veil of ignorance, told that they had a 50% chance of being a 65-year-old who gets to live another 15 years, and a 50% chance of dying at age 25. That prompt made the participants favor the young patient even more. When told to look at the situation objectively, saving young lives seemed even better. To Sharif, his study and others support what many already suspect to be true, that certain deaths bother us more than others do. If it was attractive, 15-year-old blonde, soccer-playing children who are dying, then we would have more of a concern, he says. At 74 years old, President Donald Trump falls smack in the COVID death demographic, yet he has also minimized the threat of the virus repeatedly. This makes sense. The elderly themselves don't care much about protecting the elderly because they typically don't think of themselves as such, said Susan Fisk, a Princeton psychologist who has studied ageism and other prejudices. The old are always just a little bit older than ourselves. For the rest of us, there might be a more sinister impulse behind ageism. Most of us know someone who is elderly, be they an aging parent or grandparent, and those ties make us subconsciously crave control over how the elderly behave, Fisk says. 
Younger people subconsciously want to be sure that the elderly don't hog a disproportionate amount of time and resources. Older people are expected to step aside, she told me. The only American cultures that have consistently positive views of the elderly are African Americans and Native Americans, Fisk has found in surveys. She's not sure why, but speculates that the adversity these communities have faced has made them prize older people's wisdom and experience. Likewise, Some experts have pushed back against the assumption that young COVID-19 patients are more worth saving than the old. 50-year-olds, for example, might be more useful to the economy because they have skills and experience that 20-year-olds don't have. Utilitarians would argue that policymakers should simply maximize the total number of years people have left to live. The young certainly have more. But the fact that mostly older people are dying has helped justify something that isn't justifiable. It's helped public officials look away when they should be taking action. Elisa Evans, the executive director of Community Action of Elgin County in Michigan, a nonprofit that delivers meals to the elderly and homebound, said that she hopes something that comes of the pandemic is a better understanding and empathy for those who have no choice but to be isolated, pandemic or no pandemic. All of us now, in ways that we maybe had not appreciated prior to the pandemic, can relate, as we've all needed to be at particular times in our own self-imposed quarantines and isolation from our friends and our family, and know what it's like to go without human touch for weeks at a time, Evan said. It's absolutely been, for so many of us, an opportunity to put ourselves in other people's shoes, to have empathy in ways that we might not have had before, for some of the challenges ongoing for so many people who live in our communities. And as mentioned in the first article, a digital divide puts technology out of reach for many seniors due to high costs of devices and cell and internet service, and some areas lack broadband access. The problems mirror the divide experienced by some students struggling to connect to online learning. And a lack of tech skills bars some seniors from using the digital solutions. Although COVID is busting the myth that many seniors can't or don't want to use technology, some older adults are gaining new tech skills during this time. We have seen then that technology issues of access and skill, isolation, ageism, and empathy are all issues that have been highlighted during this pandemic, all issues that need to be addressed now as the pandemic continues and certainly when the pandemic is no longer a major crisis. Thanks for listening, and until next week, I'm Kathy Van Skoik.